Well, on St. Patrick's Day, I was caught without wearing green, so today I have my green checked mask on. I guess that somehow makes up for it. I don't know. Um, it's good to be back. I was on vacation last week and got to see um, children, uh, well, one of our children, I guess, and grandchild, as well as my parents, Jim and Evie Conrad, and they sent their greetings to you. As many of you ask about them, they are doing well and miss you um, much. Um, I'm also really encouraged by um, last week uh, the baptism because I watched online. I saw Joshua and Emerson get baptized, and Jake did a great job uh, preaching. And I'm really thankful for Jake and the youth ministry and other volunteers that are challenging students uh, to follow Jesus in different ways. So this is really cool to have uh, guys right here on the front row. Um, So uh, I'm really happy about all of that. Um, Jake did a good job, as I said, preaching and talking about the unchanging God who is trustworthy and Moses in his identity crisis. Now remember, we've done this, this series here on trusting God's story that took us through Genesis, kind of leaping and bounding and into Exodus that's going to lead us to Easter. And so today, in the part that we're going to look at, it's important to remember some of this context. The text continues to hint at Moses' identity crisis in chapter 4 and 6 that we won't look at today, but the way it hints at it is Moses does not circumcise his sons, and God is not happy with him about that until his wife Zipporah takes a flint knife and circumcises them and touches their foreskin to the feet of Moses and says, you have become a bridegroom of blood to me. Furthermore, Moses says twice in chapter 6, verse 12 and verse 30, verse 30 we will read this morning in just a moment, that he has uncircumcised lips. Now what you are going to hear as I read it in the NIV is he has faltering lips, but the word actually is uncircumcised lips. And that's kind of a weird phrase. What What is being said here? And I think what it is is this, that as we are about to read about this battle that is going to occur, Moses is God's mouthpiece to Pharaoh, his spokesperson. He's going to speak from his lips. And Moses is confessing to God, I have uncircumcised lips. I didn't even circumcise my kids. I don't even know if I fully believe. I at least haven't acted like it. Who am I to go speak as your mouthpiece? Which is interesting because one of the things that means is that at least part of this battle, though certainly not all of it, is to convince Moses himself that he can know and trust God in which he must do if he's going to lead the people out of Egypt to the promised land. So let's pick up and read God's word, if you would, with me. Chapter 6 of Exodus, verse 29, and we'll read through into chapter 7, verse 7. So here's the word of the Lord. Now when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, since I speak with faltering lips, that is uncircumcised lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Then the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. 
Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. Father in heaven, I pray that you will bless the reading of your word, which is true and relevant for us today as it was thousands of years ago. Use it to teach us, to shape us, to mold us, to guide our life. We ask in your name. Amen. Have you ever had a conversation with your boss or perhaps your spouse that you thought was about one thing and really it was about a whole other thing at a much deeper level? Right? You probably had that kind of conversation before. Uh, When my wife was frustrated by a particular issue, my tendency was to identify the problem and find a solution. I mean, that's what I was taught all through school. I was a math kid. Here's math. There's a problem. Find the solution. Done. Fixed. Well, that's not exactly the way it works in marriage, or at least not in, 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 as I've communicated with my wife, my wife, right? Because part of the thing is, part of what she is saying, I don't need you just to fix a problem. I want you to listen to me and sympathize with me. You see, the issue was deeper than the problem. The issue was that when I didn't sympathize or listen, it seemed like I did not care. And so that is something that I've learned to work on. There was deeper communication required, a deeper connection required. In this text, there's a battle that's going to take place between Moses and Pharaoh But that's what's on the surface. There is something much deeper going on, behind the scenes, if you will. Though though it is Moses and Pharaoh, and, and there is this issue of the oppression of the people by the king of Egypt, yes. And though there is the political and family dynamic of Moses growing up in Pharaoh's household and no longer being there and coming back and clashing with the Pharaoh again, it's much deeper than that. Even though Moses has this identity crisis that he is working through, can he be a follower of the Lord and lead the Lord's people? It's still much deeper than that. Because I think what this text is showing us is is pulling back the curtains and saying what you are seeing is a spiritual battle of the gods. In fact, what you see is a clash of spiritual forces played out on the battlefield of earth. And I want to try to show you that. So it's a battle of the gods. We know this because we just read in verse 1 where it said that Moses is going to be like God to Pharaoh. Now, why would God say that? Because Pharaoh was the gods of Egypt representation on earth. And Moses is being God's representative to Pharaoh. In other words, what he's saying is it's not just you and Pharaoh. It's the gods of Egypt and me doing battle. Let's put that uh, first slide, that picture. This is a cartouche um, here, and you can leave this up for a minute as I talk about it. It's a cartouche. Uh, dem- it's a uh, picturing Ra, the god of Egypt, traveling through the underworld. It's a copy out of the Book of Gates from the tomb of Ramses the um, first. Things I want you to notice about this as I talk about this are above the central figure's head is an object there, which it looks to be the sun, which is representing Ra, one of the main gods of Egypt. This uh, figure is on a boat or a barge, and that's significant because in Egyptian um, 
deity in mythology, the way they describe it, Ra, the sun god, journeys by barge through the day in which the sun brings life to the earth and light and makes things grow, and then journeys at night below to the underworld. And in going to the underworld, Ra's journey is, um, is fraught with peril, attacked by enemy gods that want to destroy Egypt in order, specifically attacked by a god known as Apophis, the great serpent, who wants to return the world to chaos and disorder. Now, you'll notice in this picture that in front of the, uh, in front of the pharaoh-like person, Ra, standing there with the staff in his hand is a serpent. And then there's a serpent kind of squiggly all around him, right? There's white and light around him. And then the serpent around him is trying to attack and get to him, but he has to ward off the serpent. And in doing so, each day when the sun rises, the people know, ah, Ra won the battle and has brought light and life again to us. That's the cycle that happens within the Egyptian system of deities. And so Pharaoh is Ra's representative deity and king to bring order to the world. When Egypt goes well, it's because Pharaoh is bringing order through Ra. In other words, it is deeply spiritual. Deeply supernatural. Furthermore, you'll notice that there's a staff in his hand. The staff reinforces this supernatural battle when Moses encounters Pharaoh. Let's go to the next slide. This is a a picture of King Tut's carsophagus, King Tutankhamun, right? And um, he uh, was buried, and uh, you notice in his headdress, the, the headdress even has a serpent on it. But notice what I want you to notice is in his hands. His hands are crossed, and in each hand holds something. It's a crook and a flail, okay? So the crook is like a shepherd's staff, which demonstrates that Pharaoh is the one, ultimately, that cares and provides for the people. And the flail is either one of two things, scholars say, a defense mechanism to protect and defend or used to thresh out wheat, but in either way is defending and providing barley and grain for the harvest. In other words, Pharaoh is the one that brings all blessing and controls all things for the people of Egypt. Okay? Now that's important. There's not just those two scepters that are used. Various scepters are used by kings and pharaohs. Still, still in modern day, right, you think of nobility and either, you know, the queen of England or whoever, right, will often have a scepter in royal processions and things like that. The reason that's important is because what we're about to read. Because a staff represents something. It represents power of that person to wield power and authority on behalf of the gods or the order that is. So follow along with me now. Let's pick up in verse 8 and read verses 8 through 13. So the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned the wise men and sorcerers and the Egyptians' uh, magicians, also did the same thing by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. So the things I want you to notice, as I was reading that, right, where when Pharaoh says, 
perform a miracle, right? A miracle, by definition, is something supernatural that doesn't occur naturally in the natural order of things. Again, to my point, pulling back the curtain, there's a battle of something greater than what is immediately present. There's a supernatural battle at play here. And furthermore, when Aaron throws down a staff and it becomes a serpent, and then Pharaoh's magicians do the same thing, and theirs become serpents, that's the supernatural powers, right? But notice what it says. It doesn't say that Aaron's serpent ate the other serpents. That's not what it says. It says Aaron's staff ate the other staffs. And I think that's intentional to say, Pharaoh, we're doing battle, and your staff represents power, but you don't have the power you think you do. Because the power that Moses and Aaron have from God is greater. And that's the prelude to the battle of the plagues that comes. And so it introduces us to that. The other thing that Pharaoh does is he says, look, there's his, it says his heart is hardened, right? There's no way he's giving up power. No way. He's not doing that. He's like, I got like a million plus people here as labor. And um, I don't know if you noticed, but I'm the one that rules this land, Egypt, and it looks like it's going pretty well to me. So I don't think so. Furthermore, we know that he doesn't want to do this from chapter 5, verse 2, which I think we can put that verse on the screen as well. Pharaoh says to Moses, when Moses first goes to him, says, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. See, what Pharaoh knows is his system, his gods. He's not going to listen to Moses. And then the plagues come. In chapters uh, 7 through 11, the plagues come, and they are directed at various gods of Egypt. Again, it's overtly spiritual, supernatural battle. Furthermore, to cite that again, in chapter 12, verse 12, we can put this slide on the screen as well. It says, on that same night, now this is talking about the 10th plague, the final plague, um, when the firstborn will be struck down. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. You see what the Lord is doing? This is not primarily a battle against people. It's a battle against gods for people. And that is important because the battle of the gods is actually for the people. It's for their allegiance. It's for the kind of empire or kingdom that they should have and live in. And so the plagues are purposeful and progressive, and I'm not going to walk through all of them, but I do want to observe a couple things at a high level about the plagues. Several scholars have noted that the plagues seem to occur in three cycles of three plagues each. Plagues one to three, four to six, seven to nine, and then climaxing in the tenth final plague in which Pharaoh says, okay, get out of here, leave, and the people leave. In that cycle, what is really interesting is that God, in the beginning of each of those cycles, introduces when Moses goes to Pharaoh in the morning and meets Pharaoh and says, this is happening so that you will know that I am is I am. Now, Jake last week did a good job of explaining I am and what that means. I'm not going to go into that again, but what I want you to remember is this word to know, right? So that you will know now, you would have to remember way back to when we were doing Genesis, back before Christmas, 
um, to think about this and notice that that word to know is more than intellectual knowledge. It is, in Hebrew, experiential, and it has meaning of purpose and uh, personal and intimate connection. In fact, it's often used to describe sexual relations. It's how Adam and Eve actually know good and evil because they took fruit and they ate the fruit. It wasn't an intellectual exercise. It was practiced experientially. Now, the people have been in Egypt for a long time. Right? Remember? Because Joseph brings his father and brothers there. And they settle, and things are really good then. But Joseph dies. And generation after generation after generation goes by, and the pharaohs soon forget Joseph and people and say, no. No, and they start oppressing them and are brutal to them and treat them as slaves and make them uh, make bricks without straw and, and don't give them breaks and oppress them brutally and, and fight against them and, and, and often kill them. And so surely the Hebrew people, Jacob, Israel's descendants, have heard the stories maybe from their grandfather or about their great-grandfather or great-great-grandfather. They've heard the stories, but they don't know God. Not in the experiential way, or maybe they do individually, but collectively what they know is they are oppressed by Egypt and the gods of Egypt. And they haven't seen God work, but God hears their cry. He sees their oppression, and the battle is for his people. And so let's look at this, this cycle that I talked about. Let's put verse 17, chapter 7, 17 on the screen. This is the first plague where the Nile is changed to blood. And he says, this is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike water of Nile and it will be changed to blood. So he introduces the first cycle, the first three. By this you will know I am the Lord. Okay. What God is saying to Pharaoh through Moses is he's saying, look, you will know I am that I am, as Jake talked about last week, or I am who I will be. It's not changing my name and my character, my being. You're going to know how great I am. And then one of the things that happens in that cycle, not in the first two plagues, but by the third plague, the magicians cannot match it. Let's put chapter 8, verses 18 and 19 on the screen. So the first two plagues happen. Pharaoh calls his magicians up and says, come on, Work your magic, do your thing. And they, the first two plagues, they match them and do the same thing. But by the third one, this is what happens. They tried to produce the gnats by their secret arts, and they could not do it. Since the gnats were on the people and animals everywhere, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. They're like, look, we've tried, and we can't do it. And then something interesting happens in the second cycle of plagues, where we see the flies, the livestock that die and boils. Again, it starts off in chapter 8, verse 22, with, you will know that I am God, right? It says this, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there, so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. So this is saying that I, I am, am in this land. What's significant is what God is now doing to Pharaoh, saying this isn't just general, like catastrophe, I am being focused and specific. And now it's coming to you and not my people. I will shield them from it. Like, now that's even, how do you have that kind of power? And so that's what he's doing. So that Pharaoh will know that in the land that he thinks he rules, that he doesn't rule, that the Lord God rules that land as well. 
In other words, he's kind of saying, like, I'm the one that holds the crook and the flail. I'm the one that shepherds people and cares for them and provides for them. And then in verse 11 of chapter 9, the magicians, again, can't, do, can't perform anything. They, they, they could not even stand before Moses because the boils that were on them, so Pharaoh's supernatural agents, their secret arts, they can't do anything. There's no power to match. And then the third cycle is hail, locusts, and darkness, plagues 7 through 9. And again, at the beginning of it, in chapter 9, verse 14, right when they start, we see again, I will send, and he says, I could have sent the full force of the plagues. I could have struck you and wiped you off the face of the earth. And he says, so that you may know there is no one like me in all the earth. If you notice the progression, God is saying, look, Pharaoh, so you know that I am. Pharaoh's like, eh, maybe you got some powers, but not here. This is my land. He says, no, so that you will know I am in your land, too, because it's my land. Oh, and by the way, it's not just here. I am Lord over all the earth, so that everybody on earth will know. Look at verse 16 in chapter 9, and notice how this comes through. He could have wiped them all out, but he says, but I have raised you up for this very purpose that I might show my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Right? Because what's going to happen? All the other nations are going to hear about what's going on. Man, did you hear what's going on in Egypt? Just like we get news stories and like, oh man, hurricanes and floods and fires. Like, I mean, could you imagine if that was in the 24-hour news cycle now? Like, it would be nuts. And so people are going to know. And again... In chapter 10, verse 7, the magicians or Pharaoh's officials come to him, and they know it's game over. Like, do you not realize Egypt is ruined? Give up! And Pharaoh won't give up. He hardens his heart even more. Now, what do we do with all this? I'm trying to tell you, I think you get, that what's going on here is not just human-to-human stuff. This is God saying, from the garden, when Satan entered and tempted mankind and led astray through Noah's day, through the Tower of Babel, when people denied me and did not want to listen to me, instead said, we'll build a tower to the gods and make our own system, and God scatters them and says, no. To now, God is saying, look, there is a war going on that you don't see in which I am doing battle with the evil one. But here it's being played out on the battlefield of earth. And it's for the people. It's for us to see. It's for us to know the Lord. Not just intellectually, but experientially and personally. And so one of the questions I want to ask is, who do you identify with? Right? Let's, let's, let's think about this. Okay, here's the stage being set. But if you're a person at that time, who do you identify with? Do you identify with Pharaoh? The Egyptians? Israel? Moses? I mean, who do you identify with, and how do you interpret and understand what's going on? What about Moses? I mean, think of Moses, right? He had the burning bush experience, which is pretty cool, okay, and certainly gets his attention, and he knows what he's got to do, even though he doesn't necessarily like to do it. He knows that's what he's going to do. But if that didn't fully convince Moses in knowing and trusting and serving the Lord all the earth, certainly now, He's convinced. He knows experientially in a way this God is the God I deal with. It's the God of all the earth. Have you experienced the power of God? Do you know God? Experientially. 
Many of you do. Probably most of you do. And I, I want you to think about the ways you know that you personally have experienced God. And there's lots I can list, but I, I mean, I can't list them all, but let me list a few. I know people who have survived hurricanes. Like, so lots of people survive hurricanes. True. I know some people who were stuck on Little Cayman Island, one mile by three miles, when I think it was Hurricane Gilbert was heading at it, 500-mile-wide storm. The right side was supposed to hit. They were on a scuba trip. They went to the highest spot on the land, which was an airplane hangar. There was several feet above sea level, but nothing great. People were praying. And the night before, so it hit in the morning, or it hit late afternoon, and the night before, it changed course slightly north, meaning that instead of the right side of the storm hitting the island, the left side of the storm hit the island. They gather in the airplane hangar, sat in jeeps and stuff, trying to wait it out. Everything gets ripped apart, and the ocean covered the entire island up to their chest. But the weak side of the storm hit it. They survived. I know people in the Bahamas who clung to palm trees and stuck feet on nails coming out of boards in the floor to not be swept away by the ocean. But that's just big storms like that. I know people, you know people, some of you have been healed in ways that doctors couldn't explain. You have experienced the power of God over and through your addictions. That's knowing God in a different way. You have perhaps experienced and seen God work in restoring relationships that you thought were otherwise done. These and other ways are ways that you know, that you experience personally, who is God, the Lord. What about Pharaoh? He knows that he has sinned. He knows that that he's done wrong. He says so in chapter 9, but it doesn't change his mind because he's still angry at the Lord. What about you? Will you change? Because there's circumstances all around us. How do you deal with them? They, they can soften your heart and melt it, or they can make you hard, bitter, and angry. And that's what happens to Pharaoh. Somebody once said that the same sun melts wax and hardens clay. Who are you? Is your heart soft? Is it like wax? Is it being melted? Or is it becoming like clay and getting harder and angry and bitter? Knowing God means trusting him with your heart. Turn to him. Turn to him. Believe. Trust in his story. What about Israel? I mean, Israel, what does it mean for them to know the Lord? They are going to be liberated and freed from oppression, and we say, hooray, yes, they should be. And they should be. But think of what that means for them. Yes, they're freed from oppression, but they also lived in the land of Goshen, which Jacob, their father, was given by Joseph. And they're shepherds. And so when they leave and they're freed from oppression, where do they go? To the wilderness, on their way to the promised land. But if you're shepherds, and your thing is like, man, we know how to shepherd and farm, and we can grow stuff and provide for us, you tell me where you want to live. Put this slide on. This is a satellite photo of that region. The part that's green... 
where the red dot is, is Goshen in the Nile Delta. You know the Sinai Peninsula between the Red Sea there, or in the Gulf of Aqaba and, and the Suez there? That's the wilderness. You're shepherds. Where do you want to live? The Nile's the most fertile land in that part of the world, if not the whole world. And so when they have to leave, yes, they're freed from oppression. But now what do they have? The doubt of survival. Can we trust God where we're going? Can we trust God where we're going? Right? I mean, it raises a question. Is do you prefer a life of world empire and comfort or, like Israel, will they trust the Lord of all the earth whom they've experienced? Right? One uh, Ray Vanderlaan, who does a video series teaching and stuff, said this. God is bringing his people out of Egypt. But the bigger question is, can he get Egypt out of his people? And we're going to see that they long to go back to Egypt. They're just like, if we could only go back to Egypt. That says something, doesn't it, about their life? Knowing God, will they trust his story for their life? And will you trust his story? The takeaway question we can put on the screen is this, and I'll try to talk about it a little bit and give you some examples, is what in my life demonstrates that I know the Lord personally and experientially? Ways that maybe you can, you can just leave that on the screen. Let me ask you this question. Do you identify America with God's country? What do you mean, Pastor? You should love your country. I love my country. You should be invested in it, wherever you live, wherever you're from, wherever you're watching around the globe maybe today. But I want you to understand not to confuse your country with God's kingdom. They are not the same thing. God goes to Pharaoh and says, you think you're Lord in this land, but you're not. I am. I'm Lord of all the earth. Which means, could you know God and be Christian if you had to live in somewhere else? China, South Sudan, someplace torn by civil war, Russia. I mean, what if you didn't get to live in Midlotopia? Could you do it? What would it tell you about how you know personally and experience God? Another question is, is it easier for you to befriend a non-Christian in the same political party and mindset that you have than it is to befriend a Christian with a different political vantage point than you have? It might be an indicator what you love most. transition off of that and ask these questions. Is there any room for God in your life of leisure and comfort? How does your life demonstrate that you know God? Do you choose comfort over following Jesus? Do you choose comfort over worship with God's people? We can't wait till the pandemic's over, right? And we can all be together again. Do you spend money on yourself or generously invest in the kingdom? And you can do both, right? Obviously, you've got to spend money on yourself. But is it all on you? Or do you generously invest in God's kingdom as he asks us to do? All of these are ways of asking what in your life demonstrates that you know God personally and experientially. 
And there's many more we could think of and ask. But that's what I want you to think about this week. What in my life demonstrates that I know God personally and experientially? Mike Morin, who we mentioned earlier and Brian prayed for, is battling cancer. Rick Carter's battling cancer as well. Thankfully, Mike finished his last round of chemo this week, and you may have seen that on, on his social media story, and he rang the bell and everything, and, which is fantastic. And it's obvious from his story that he knows, and by knows I mean experiences, God. He writes about it to make God's name known. He recently posted and quoted Romans 8.28 that says, All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And then Mike wrote these words. This is what I'm talking about, people. He is good all the time, despite the fact that we cannot always see. Because he knows the character of his God is good. And in his hardest times, he's experienced it. And then he quoted Charles Spurgeon, the preacher that was referenced earlier, who said, Can you ask for a better promise? It is better that all things should work for my good than all things should be as I wish to have them. All things might work for my pleasure and yet might all work my ruin. If all things do not always please me, they will always benefit me. That is knowing the God who is good and works through whatever circumstances that you might experience and trust his story in your life. I pray that you trust his story. There is no better one. Let's pray. Jesus, I do pray that you will help each of us to trust your story, that we will turn to you, that we will follow you and listen to your voice and not just the voices of those around us or in our world, but that we will see your kingdom, which is global, it's cosmic, that is being ushered in, as Jesus said, and yet we await its final consummation in heaven. Lord, help us to be people of the book, of the scripture, who live for your glory, which is always for our good. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.